Well, welcome to the second week of Lent, the second Sunday in Lent. Uh, this is our second week as we study the reading, uh, or the, the story of the raising of Lazarus. We're using a book by James Martin, um, Come Forth, the Promise of Jesus' Greatest Miracle as a Guide, in addition to the scripture reading that Brett read for us. You'll notice that this week we added some verses to, to our reading. Last week we, we got to the beginning of the story, and this week we have Jesus and his disciples heading out to go towards Bethany. It's an impressive story. It's 44 verses long. Like I said last week, if we were going to preach and study the whole thing, we'd only be able to pick one of the many themes in this story to be able to focus on. But I want to tell us some ground rules again. I want to refresh your memory for how we're going to do a, a Bible study in, in this manner. First, I want to remind you that we are examining a miracle that happened over 2,000 years ago. But we're doing it through the lens of 2024, where we can, if we have a question about something or if we need proof, we can go to Google. And if we don't like the answer we found, we can go find an answer that we like better. So I want you to not look at this miracle through the medical miracles that happen today. I want us to examine this story through the eyes of faith. And next, I want to keep your mind, I want you to keep your mind open to this story. Zombies creep me out. Into the world, zombie shows and TV shows scare the life out of me. But I want you to know that the story of Lazarus and its themes run deeper than zombies from modern day entertainment. And lastly, we need to talk about the Bible. As your pastor, I have a duty to say that I love the Bible as much as any of you do. And I hold the Bible in the highest regards. When we, in the United Methodist Church, we believe that God is continuing to speak through us in the Bible. And I'm going to read something from our United Methodist Doctrine so you know that I'm not making this up. That we believe that the Bible contains everything that is necessary for salvation. We believe that the writers of the Bible, that they were inspired by God. They were filled by the Holy Spirit. And that they conveyed the best truth about God that they understood. On the Bible, uh, theologian James Cone wrote this. There is no perfect guide for discerning God's movement in the world. Contrary to what many say, the Bible is not a blueprint on this matter. It's a valuable symbol, and it points to God's revelation in Jesus Christ, but the it, the Bible, is not self-interpreting. We, we, we are thus placed in the situation of freedom, in which the burden is on us to make decisions without a guaranteed guide. All right, let us pray. Saving God, free us from hardness of heart. Take from us all pride and pretension. Strip us clean of all that makes us incapable of being witnesses of your gentle love. Make us worthy agents of your peace, so that even as we contend with one another, the world may say, but see how they love one another. Amen. So let's talk about Lazarus. Let's talk about Jesus. The story goes like this. Lazarus gets sick. His sister, 
his sisters, sorry, Mary and Martha, send word to Jesus. They are in Judea. Jesus is on the other side of the Jordan River. News gets to Jesus that his beloved friend Lazarus is sick. Jesus waits two days before making his departure to go to Judea. By the time he gets to Bethany, by the time he gets to Mary and Martha and his friend Lazarus, Lazarus has been dead for four days. So he waited two days. It took him an additional two days to get there. And when he gets there, Lazarus has the stench of death on him for nearly a week. Lazarus is placed, had been placed in a tomb. Jesus stands outside the tomb. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus had a, an emotional reaction. His humanity comes out in that moment. He weeps, just as any of us might weep if we stood at the grave of a family member or a friend. But then Jesus shouts to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes out of the tomb, and the people who had been watching take Lazarus' burial clothes off. It's a miraculous moment that moved observers to faith in Jesus Christ and at the same moment set in motion the events that will happen as Jesus enters Jerusalem for the Passover festival. But today our focus is on verses 1 through 16. Jesus told his disciples that it was time to go to Judea again. The disciples questioned Jesus' judgment because, quote, the Jews had previously attempted to stone Jesus the last time he was in the region. The disciples, they, they were afraid. They were afraid of what would happen if they went back into that region again. And they say, Rabbi, Rabbi, the Jews are going to try to stone you. You're going to go there again? They use a phrase. We use this phrase time and time again. Maybe not for the same group of people, but we will use it for groups of people nonetheless. The disciples say, the Jews. A few years ago, while I was still in seminary, I spent a week studying north of Baltimore City with some rabbinic students. It was an ecumenical time together. We studied our holy scriptures. Imagine sitting across from a rabbinic student having to read the New Testament with them and lead them in a Bible study. And then imagine as a seminary student having just taken Hebrew Bible 1 and 2 thinking I knew everything there was to know about the book of Exodus. Sitting across from a rabbinic student and they're leading me in a Bible study. It was an amazing week. I, share, I got to share how much I appreciated the Jewish, fast, the Jewish Passover festival and how much it helped me understand the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Hey, through the week, though, things got tense. And that might be an understatement. None of us knew what we were about to read, but we sat down around round tables. There were about 12 of them. And we read a work by the reformer Martin Luther. You all will remember Martin Luther. He took his 90-plus complaints, went to a cathedral in Germany, nailed them on the door, and now here we are today, Protestants. I don't know what we're still protesting, but here we are today. But we sat around the table, and there were Xeroxed copies of a document. Remember, I've gone, at this point, I'm in my second round 
of seminary. I had studied a lot of Luther at this point, and I pulled the document towards me, and the top of it says, On the Jews and their lives. Martin Luther. Okay. So we begin to read through this document, and it is 65,000 words of anti-Judaic and anti-Semitism. Now remember, who's sitting across the table from me? It's not a United Methodist pastor. It's not a Lutheran pastor. It's a Jewish rabbinic student. If you're unfamiliar with this document, don't worry. I don't want you to fret about that. A pastor friend of mine down the street who's much smarter, much more learned than I am, has many more leather-bound books in their office, first learned about this document on Thursday of this week. You see, the first 10 sections of this 65,000-word document lays out Luther's views on Judaism and Jewish people. Ten sections on Luther's thoughts. And then, if those ten sections were not enough, Luther provides seven follow-up steps that Protestants can carry out to remedy the issues that Luther laid out in the previous section. Those solutions included or include the document still exists, burning synagogues, taking gold and silver away from Jews, and only to give them their property back after they repent and convert to Christianity. Luther had no issue with Jews who converted to Christianity, but those who did not convert were on the receiving end of Luther's call to arms, within the new Protestant movement. One of the places where Luther and others who share and write anti-Judaic and anti-Semitic writings, they find their inspiration in this particular section of John 11. The phrase, the Jews. Before we can dive into this phrase, we need to acknowledge that, hold on, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was born into the house of David. He was Jewish royalty. He and his family did all of the things a Jewish family would do. He was born. Then he was taken to the temple a few days later and presented. His parents made a burnt offering to the Lord to celebrate Jesus' birth that was in accordance with Jewish law. Jesus observed the Sabbath. He took time to rest. He devoted a day to God. He worshiped in the synagogues. He taught in the synagogues. He observed the Jewish festivals, like the festival of dedication, which occurred in John 10, which is the reason why he was run out of town. Throughout Jesus' life, he never held citizenship within the Roman Empire. He didn't have the same rights that a Roman citizen would have. Roman citizens were Gentiles, and Jesus was, was Jewish. So I want you to take a moment. I want you to consider for a moment that Jesus was Jewish, that Jesus was not a Protestant. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, was not a United Methodist. Consider that for a moment. How, and then I want you to discuss with one another, how does understanding Jesus 
first as a Jew help you connect with his life? Or what aspects of his Jewishness might help you better understand who Jesus is today? So the problem, other than John singing the wrong verse of the wrong hymn, which is fine. Sing loud and sing proud is what I always say, just with your microphone off. Um, the problem lies the phrase the Jews is used nearly 70 times in the Gospels and usually that phrase, the Jews, is used to set up an opposition party to Jesus. I was sharing with my group that one of my favorite uh, professors that I have learned of in the last few years is a woman by the name of Dr. Amy Jill Levine. She teaches at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And Nashville's a great town, and it's even better because that's where Amy Jill Levine lives. But anyways, Amy Jill Levine is a Jewish New Testament scholar. She's a Jew. She knows Exodus frontwards and backwards, and she uses that to help us better understand our New Testament, our Gospels. And so James Martin channels her in this book, and, and, and she, he points out that there were various Jewish factions at play during this time. We had Pharisees and Sadducees. We had chief priests. We had priests. We had scribes. And when we assume sweeping conclusions about the Jewish culture based on our limited and often skewed presentation of the Gospels, we miss something. Here's what Amy Jill writes. The modern-day analogy for us, when we use the term the Jews, would be to think that if one knows a few details about the Knights of Columbus, the Kiwanis Club, the Freemasons, and even the Boy Scouts of America, one would understand American society. When we lump a group of people together into a category like the Jews, or the Muslims, or the Russians, or the Ukrainians, or the Americans, or the Mexicans, or the Palestinians, or the Israelis, whenever we do that, we are risking reducing each person in that group's imago deiness, that each and every one of them was create, created in the image of God, we are attempting to reduce that. When we make a caricature out of an entire group of people based on our prejudices, and in turn we are ignoring the rich diversity of a group of people. If we have learned anything from the Holocaust, if we have learned anything from what is happening in Ukraine, if we have learned anything from what is happening in Gaza today, it is that once a group of people's identity has been reduced to other, the group responsible for the ills of another group, once we reduce them to that, the removal of those people becomes so much easier. Murder and genocide are easier to sell when the humanity of the other has been stripped away. In recent years, Christians in the United States have been coming to grips with the church's role in the dehumanization of indigenous populations in North America, along with those who were forcibly moved to North America through the transatlantic slave trade. 
That trade led to what James Cone describes as the lynching era, when white Christians, in the name of Jesus, under the banner of the cross and God's salvation, lynched nearly 5,000 black men and women in a manner that obviously echoes the Roman crucifixion of Jesus. We were talking in Bible study this morning. There was a document that was written by the Vatican, by the Catholic Church, to begin to undo the othering of Jews at the hands of the church. And while I'm happy that document exists, I'm sad to say it didn't happen until the 1960s. It didn't happen until Vatican II. That we have nearly 2,000 years of Christian history where the Jews or those othered have been harmed at the hands of Christians. Misconceptions going back and forth about what our problems are and how someone else is the cause of them. And if how we could just remove those people, if we could transport them to somewhere else, our lives under the banner of Christ would be better. So if you thought the last question was easy. Here's another one for you. Why do you think that misconceptions about Jewish people, Jewish culture, and Jewish religion exist within the church today? And then I want you to take this question a step further. Consider why misconceptions about Muslims, Jews, other religions, or even other Christians exist within the church today. So there's this guy, you may have heard of him, his name's Paul. Before Paul was Paul, his name was Saul. Saul was riding on a horse on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, who at the time were the others within Jewish and Roman society. He was knocked off his horse by our Lord, had a life-changing experience, and then was the great evangelist of the church. And St. Paul wrote something to the church in Galatia that puts an end to the us versus them, the us versus the other debate conversation that happens in the church and around the world. Here's what he wrote. Because of Christ Jesus, because of Christ's life, death, resurrection, he wrote this. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. There's no longer this group and that group. There's no longer this subsect of people over there and us way over here. We are all one. Not because of our efforts or our ability to befriend one another, not because of our ability to be nice to one another, not because we can bring everybody around to think about the view of the world and the way we view the world. No, we are one because of Christ. The labels and the prejudices we use to other one another were torn down on the cross. On the cross. Christ, in taking the sins of the world upon himself, put an end to us versus them. And this is where we find the good news in this portion of the story of Lazarus. Even while John uses problematic language, 
the grace of God remains. Lazarus was a Jew. Christ raised him. And the promise holds true for us, those who worship a raised Jew. Because those we deem, even if we deem others unworthy of God's love, God's grace, that imago deiness that I talked about at the beginning of the sermon, is yours, is theirs, whether we or whether they like it or not. Amen.